accepted to announce a certain restrictions on this evening of freedom. One is no smoking. <clears throat> and the other is that anyone who wishes not to be filmed, this is a camera provided by the Reagan administration, CIA news, uh, should leave. <laughs> we'll now give you one second to leave. This evening, as you know, is dedicated to the works of forbidden writers. And our program is presented as a form of protest against the un-American activities of our government and barring foreigners from our country because of their writing and their political beliefs. Each writer whose works will be read to you tonight, such writers as Gabriel Garcia Marquez, our recent Nobel Prize winner for literature, and Carlos Fuentes, and Julio Cortazar, and Pablo Neruda, and many others, have been denied a regular entry visa to the United States, a visa usually afforded other aliens. These writers have been branded excludable under a specific section of the United States Immigration and Nationality Act of 1952, more commonly known as the McCarran-Walter Act. As a result of this law, these writers and scores of others, as well as historians and sociologists and economists, psychologists and philosophers, all have been denied visas, or in the case of some harassed and humiliated but persistent individuals, they have been given visas that were restrictive by comparison to visas obtained by an average foreign visitor. Due to this lamentable state of affairs, the Fund for Free Expression and Center for National Security Studies has forged a coalition of more than 30 organizations, among them Penn, to address and publicize this issue. In September of this year, this coalition will sponsor a day-long conference entitled Free Trade and Ideas which will focus not only on ideological exclusion, but on all aspects of the United States laws that impede the flow of ideas across American borders. Though tonight's readings and the conference in September, we hope through these to enlighten the public on the issue of ideological exclusion. We are aware that few Americans know about this issue, but we're confident that once they learn they will join us in pressing for the repeal of a law that defies Americans' tradition of democracy and devotion to free speech. Patricia Durian will speak more fully about these provisions, but first, John Irving will read a selection from the work of Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Thank you. Some years ago, our president apparently wished to enhance the liveliness of the Supreme Court by adding to its ranks a man named G. Harold Carswell. Carswell was a golfer, I think, although he did have a few other credentials for the job. And these credentials were considered mediocre by many, 
and Carswell was referred to even as a kind of C student of jurisprudence, and he didn't get the job. At the time, this insult prompted a response from Senator Fruska of Nebraska. This is what the senator said. What this country needs is more C students. I've never forgotten that. I've never really been sure what it means. But I remain frightened by the remark. It seems to me that we are in a state of such perilous decline that our salvation is already in the hands of C students. In case you haven't noticed, we're in their hands now. We have a C student administration. And if we reelect President Reagan, we may witness some appointments to the Supreme Court that will make G. Harold Carswell appear overqualified for the job. <laughs> it should come as no surprise to us that a C student administration doesn't want to listen to someone as smart as Garcia Marquez, who only this month was denied anything better than a provisional visa to this country. I hope it's clear that we would improve our national character by finally ridding ourselves of the vestiges of McCarthyism, which shame us, or should shame us even today. It's my pleasure to read to you tonight from a Garcia Marquez story written in 1970. It's an appropriate story to our subject because it's about a senator who debases himself. I'm sure we can think of government representatives who've done far worse to debase themselves than the poor senator whose folly Garcia Marquez details. But it's also a funny story. I wouldn't read you a story that was so strictly about debasement that you wouldn't have any fun. <laughs> I must apologize to you for my Spanish and for my French. I confess to being a C student of Spanish, and I'm less than that in French. Fortunately for you and for me, there's very little Spanish and French in this story, which is translated into English. Um, I think I'm better than a C student in English, although this is not an opinion shared by everyone. <laughs> so perhaps we can glide through this little short story without suffering excessive embarrassment. Since I'm not proud of my Spanish and French pronunciation, I won't be offended if you laugh at it. In fact, if you don't laugh, I'll know that you don't know any more than I do. Death constant beyond love. Senator Onesimo Sanchez had six months and 11 days to go before his death when he found the woman of his life. He met her in Rosal de Verey, an illusory village which by night was the furtive wharf for smugglers' ships, and on the other hand, in broad daylight, looked like the most useless inlet on the desert, facing a sea that was arid and without direction, and so far from everything, no one would have suspected that someone capable of changing the destiny of anyone lived there. Even its name was a kind of joke, because the only rose in the village was being worn by Senator Onesimo Sanchez himself on the same afternoon when he met Laura Farina. It was an unavoidable stop in the electoral campaign he made every four years. The carnival wagons had arrived in the morning. Then came the trucks with the rented Indians, 
who were carried into the towns in order to enlarge the crowds at public ceremonies. A short time before 11 o'clock, along with the music and the rockets and the jeeps of the retinue, the ministerial automobile, the color of strawberry soda, arrived. Senator Sanchez was placid and weatherless inside the air-conditioned car, but as soon as he opened the door, he was shaken by a gust of fire, and his shirt of pure silk was soaked in a kind of light-colored soup. He felt many years older and more alone than ever. In real life, he had just turned 42, had been graduated with honors as a metallurgical engineer, was an avid reader, although without much reward, of badly translated Latin classics. He was married to a radiant woman who had given him five children, and they were all happy in their home. He, the happiest of all, until they told him three months before that he would be dead forever by next Christmas. He took several pills before the time prescribed so that he would have the remedy ahead of the pain. Except for the doctors, no one knew that he had been sentenced to a fixed term, for he had decided to endure his secret alone with no change in his life, not because of pride, but out of shame. He felt in full control of his will when he appeared in public with his soul sustained by the anti-pain pills. Nevertheless, the erosion of death was much more pernicious than he had supposed, for as he went up onto the platform, he felt a strange disdain for those who were fighting for the good luck to shake his hand, and he didn't feel sorry, as he had at other times, for the groups of barefoot Indians who could scarcely bear the hot saltpeter coals of the sterile little square. He silenced the applause with a wave of his hand, almost rage, and he began his eyes fixed on the sea, which was sighing with heat. His measured, deep voice had the quality of calm water, but the speech that had been memorized and ground out so many times had not occurred to him in the nature of telling the truth. We are here for the purpose of defeating nature, he began against all his convictions. We will no longer be foundlings in our own country, orphans of God in a realm of thirst and bad climate, exiles in our own land. We will be different people, ladies and gentlemen. We will be a great and happy people. There was a pattern to his circus as he spoke his aids through clusters of paper birds into the air, and the artificial creatures took on life, flew about the platform of planks, and went out to sea. At the same time, other men took some prop trees with felt leaves out of the wagons and planted them in a saltpeter soil behind the crowd. They finished by setting up a cardboard facade with make-believe houses of red brick that had glass windows, and with it they covered the miserable real-life shacks. The senator prolonged his speech with two quotations in Latin in order to give the farce more time. He promised rain-making machines, and when he saw that his fictional world was all set up, he pointed to it. That's the way it'll be for us, ladies and gentlemen, he shouted. Look, that's the way it'll be for us. The audience turned around. An ocean liner made of painted paper was passing behind the houses, and it was taller than the tallest houses in the artificial city. Only the senator himself noticed that since it had been set up and taken down and carried from one place to another, the superimposed cardboard town had been eaten away by the terrible climate, and that it was almost as poor and dusty as Rosal de Veray. For the first time in 12 years, Nelson Farina didn't go to greet the senator. He 
He listened to the speech from his hammock amidst the remains of his siesta under the cool bower of a house of unplaned boards which he had built with the same pharmacist's hands with which he had drawn and quartered his first wife. He had escaped from Devil's Island and appeared in Rosal de Veray on a ship loaded with innocent macaws with a beautiful and blasphemous black woman he had found in Paramiibo and by whom he had had a daughter. The woman died of natural causes a short while later, and she didn't suffer the fate of the other whose pieces had fertilized her own cauliflower patch, but was buried whole and with her Dutch name in the local cemetery. The daughter had inherited her color and her figure along with her father's yellow and astonished eyes, and he had good reason to imagine that he was rearing the most beautiful woman in the world. Ever since he had met Senator Onesimo Sanchez during his first electoral campaign, Nelson Farina had begged for his help in getting a false identity card which would place him beyond the reach of the law. The senator, in a friendly but firm way, had refused. Nelson Farina never gave up, and for several years, every time he found a chance, he would repeat his request. But this time he stayed in his hammock. When he heard the final applause, he lifted his head, and looking over the boards of the fence, he saw the backside of the farce, the props of the buildings, the framework for the trees, the hidden illusionists who were pushing the ocean liner along. He spat without rancor. Merd, he said. C'est la blocamène de la politique. <clears throat> After the speech, as was customary, the senator took a walk through the streets of the town in the midst of the music and the rockets, and he was besieged by the town people who told him their troubles. The senator listened to them good-naturedly, and he always found some way to console everybody without having to do them any difficult favors. He even gave a spoonful of medicine to a sick man who had had his bed brought to the door of his house so he could see him pass. At the last corner through the boards of the fence, he saw Nelson Farina in his hammock looking ashen and gloomy, but nonetheless, the senator greeted him with no show of affection. Hello, how are you? Nelson Farina turned in his hammock and soaked him in the sad amber of his look. Moi, vous avez, he said. His daughter came out into the yard when she heard the greeting. She was wearing a cheap, faded, Guajiro Indian robe, her head decorated with colored bows, and her face was painted as protection against the sun, but even in that state of disrepair, it was possible to imagine that there had never been another so beautiful in the whole world. The senator was left breathless. I'll be damned, he said in surprise. The Lord does the craziest things. That night, Nelson Farina dressed his daughter up in her, in her best clothes and sent her to the senator. Two guards armed with rifles who were nodding from the heat in the borrowed house ordered her to wait on the only chair in the vestibule. The senator was in the next room meeting with the important people of Rosal de Veray, whom he had gathered together in order to sing for them the truths he had left out of his speeches. They looked so much like all the ones he always met in all the towns in the desert that even the senator himself was sick and tired of that perpetual nightly session. His shirt was soaked with sweat and he was trying to dry it on his body with a hot breeze from an electric fan that was buzzing like a horsefly in the heavy heat of the room. Of course we can't eat paper birds, he said. You and I know that the day there are trees and flowers in this heap of goat dung, that day there are shards instead of worms in the water holes, that day neither you nor I will have anything to do here. Do I make myself clear? No one answered. The senator went on speaking with a control aided by the complicity of death. 
When the men began to come out of the meeting, the senator stood in the doorway of the room with his hand on the latch, and he only noticed Laura Farina when the vestibule was empty. What are you doing here? He asked her. C'est de la part de mon père, she said. The senator understood. He scrutinized the sleeping guards, and then he looked at Laura Farina, whose unusual beauty was even more demanding than his pain, and he resolved then that death had made his decision for him. Come in, he told her. Laura Farina was struck dumb standing in the doorway to the room because thousands of banknotes were floating in the air, flapping like butterflies. But the senator turned off the fan and the bills were left without air, and they alighted on the objects in the room. You see, he said, smiling, even shit can fly. Laura Farina sat down on a schoolboy's stool. Her skin was smooth and firm, with the same color and the same solar density as crude oil. Her hair was the mane of a young mare, and her huge eyes were brighter than the light. The senator followed the thread of her look and finally found the rose which had been tarnished by the saltpeter. It's a rose, he said. Yes, she said with a trace of perplexity. I learned what they were in Rio Haka. The senator sat down on an army cot talking about roses as he unbuttoned her shirt, his shirt, sorry. On the side where he imagined his heart to be inside his chest, he had a tattoo of a heart pierced by an arrow. He threw the soaked shirt to the floor and asked Laura Farina to help him off with his boots. She knelt down facing the cot. The senator continued to scrutinize her thoughtfully, and while she was untying the laces, he wondered which one of them would end up with the bad luck of that encounter. Thank you very much. My name is Pat Darian. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the McCarran Act, which is part of the Immigration and Nationality Act uh, passed in uh, 1952 during a period uh, which recurs from time to time in American history where we are deadly afraid of strangers and their ideas, foreigners and their ideas. That in this day and age it is as bizarre as it was in other days and other ages, um, still doesn't prevent its enactment, its imposition on the American people, its unconstitutionality, its failure to allow the free exchange of ideas. I thought I'd tell you uh, just a little bit about what Section 28, which is essentially the piece of that legislation we're talking about tonight covers. In the first place, it was meant to keep out communists, anarchists, and subversives. It was before the days of the kind of worldwide terrorism we have now. And uh, while it was certainly intended uh, in many of its parts and is now intended in many of its continuing parts to keep out people who want to come blow up the buildings and shoot down people on the street and in buses or foment war, commit other kinds of felonies. The real intent of Section 28 
was to keep people and their ideas, which were thought to be dangerous, away from the American people. In spite of the fact that the Constitution and its First Amendment speak very clearly to the idea of free speech in this country, we have had leaders throughout the years who have believed that American people were not educated enough, not well informed enough, not smart enough, not able to discern truth from fiction. It is, quite frankly, an anti-democratic point of view. It is, therefore, an un-American kind of point of view. But hold it, we have, from the first Alien Act, which resembles this, from the 18th century. When this one was passed over Harry Truman's veto, he, uh, he made the exact right comment about it, and it is quite true now, just as it was in, 1950, in 1952. Seldom has a bill exhibited the distrust evidenced here for aliens and citizens alike. And that is the reality about which we speak today. We talk about writers, we talk about scientists, we talk about people with ideas that are put forward either through scientific formula, through the written word, through works of art, sculpture, music, drama. So in addition to communist anarchists and subversives, people are kept out because they have membership in a prescribed organization. There's been a lot of trouble with the un-American list, what organizations are subversive and what organizations are not subversive. There's been a lot of discussion about it, but those lists are still made, they're added to, they're revised outside of the view of all of us. Also, we keep out people who are subversive to the national security, which sounds perfectly reasonable. You don't want people coming in, blowing up our army bases, or shooting our civilians down, or destroying our property. However, what our government includes in things that are subversive to national security are words and ideas, as well as visual images. And then we have the great standby of the Reagan administration, which is people who are prejudicial to the public interest, which is what kept the widow of the democratically elected president of Chile out of the country, a lady of 68, who was not permitted to come here recently because she was thought to be carrying ideas that were prejudicial to the public interest. At the same time, Mr. Pinochet, the dictator of Chile, had his wife come and received at the White House at a tea party. So we're dealing with absurdity. Sorry. We're dealing with a kind of bizarre Kafkaesque notion. We do it for two reasons, I think, as a government. One is we don't want to hear criticism of our foreign policy. And with the current foreign policy, if you can call it a policy at all, there is much to criticize. We also do it sometimes on behalf of client governments, where 
the government would rather not have citizens from their country coming here to speak to us about the things that their own governments do to us, to them. It's a keystone cops kind of operation. Any of these people could come and slip in through Canada. They could come and do their business, make their speeches, talk about their books, talk about their ideas, show their pictures, display their sculpture. But by and large, the people we're talking about are highly principled, and they're a handful. And so they wish to come in the normal way, by getting a visa. And there are exceptions if you're on the list. You can get in a couple of ways. You can demonstrate that for the last five years you've been actively engaged in fighting communism. Um, actually, like everything else in this legislation, nothing is spelled out, nothing is precise. There is almost no way uh, uh, to determine that that has taken place. You can get in by a fluke just because nobody's paying much attention, and in you come, much to your surprise. Or you can ask for a waiver of the exclusion. You have to be prepared to wait a long time. But suppose you got a waiver. Then you might get a list of places you could go, places you would be able to speak, and how long you could stay. We don't do that to other people. We haven't even managed the problem of illegal aliens who come to this country by the tens of thousands and learn as their first piece of business about the United States of America, how to avoid contact with the legal system, learn how to subvert it, learn scorn and contempt for it. We never pay attention to those things, trying to help people who come legally or illegally to hook up. So what you have is this peculiar piece of business greatly magnified by the Reagan administration. They don't wish to be criticized. You might cast your mind back just a few months to the revelations about the United States Information Agency, which sends American speakers all over the world to talk to people in other countries. This administration has a blacklist of people whose ideas are unacceptable to the Reagan administration for consumption by foreigners. So you put these two things together, a blacklist of Americans who are not sent abroad by their government because their ideas are dangerous, and a blacklist of foreigners who are not allowed to come to this country. That may seem like a trifle that there are not so many known people, that there are not hundreds of thousands who can't come here, not hundreds of thousands who can't go somewhere else. Justice Brandeis, in 1927, in writing about this very kind of topic, about letting foreigners with subversive ideas came here, really spelled it out very carefully. He said, unless there's an immediate danger that some foreigner's going to come here with a visa and burn something down or kill somebody, what you need, if their ideas are false, is the exchange of ideas, discussion, debate. And unless there is an emergency, such people should, not, should be allowed to come under all circumstances. That's essentially what we're talking about. There is no emergency. There is, however, the specter of the First Amendment 
being eroded more and more, piece by piece, by an administration. And this is not the work of clerks and bureaucracy. This is the kind of decision that is made at the highest level of our government. It is deliberate. It is done with sincerity of intent. And it is another step for people who live here in the limitation of freedom. It is also insulting and humiliating to people who are Nobel Prize winners, people who have ideas, people whose ideas ought to be questioned and pushed in this country. And so that's essentially what the McCarran Act is. And it's important to know about it, to write to your member of Congress, to your senator, to write letters to the paper, to act and organize to see that this is done away with. Foreigners suffer and are embarrassed by it. We are greatly diminished by it. Thank you. I'm going to be reading excerpts of a play by Frank Garame. Before I do that, I would like to read a statement to you from Dario Fo and his wife, Franca Rame. On August 28, 1983, when we received news that the United States State Department had, for the second time, denied us an entry visa, Franca and I, after some hesitation, congratulated each other. We had been awarded the highest recognition of our civil, moral, and artistic commitments. With this denial, the United States administration had generously granted us an honor of a weight and value approximated by no previous award. In fact, only the worthiest people are normally denied U.S. entry visas. The U.S. takes care not to refuse them to figures of low moral standing, persons suspected of gangsterism or belonging to the mafia, not to mention politicians with a murky past. And in fact, a visa had been granted without hesitation to Sindona, the champion bankrupt swindler, and to Deputy Almirante, the well-known murderer of anti-fascists. The Statue of Liberty bars neither drug traffickers nor big wheels of the international political and economic scene. Against these kinds of people, the American government knows it has institutions which can defend the country from any of their anti-democratic or criminal attempts. But how can it protect itself from ideas, particularly when they are advanced by an artistic medium the State Department has our highest respect. It is, in fact, the only body in the world to hold in such high esteem the thought and creative imaginings of artists. It is more than convinced that ideas put forth on the stage are more explosive than the atomic bomb. Thank you, State Department. America has paid tribute to hundreds of famous men, from Chaplin to Breck, from Marquez to Aragon, we, too, are now part of this most noble list of undesirables. Thank you, America. We have learned from newspapers in New York 
that to bar us, the State Department had to invoke Section 212A28F, by which we were, among other things, accused of being supporters and defenders of terrorists. This is fantastic. The United States is truly the empire, and we in Italy find ourselves living more and more in one of her colonies. In fact, neither judges nor police of our colony has seen fit to investigate or persecute us for such a crime. Italian institutions know very well that the battle which we have been carrying out against the prison and judiciary systems is a civil action to protect and guarantee that every democratic right be respected. But from the empire comes this irrefutable charge of terrorism. How could we make our voices heard from our faraway province? Voltaire, forced to live far from France because his satirical tales did not please the authorities, wrote to his friends in Paris, I've been wandering around the world and forbidden to live where I would like, which causes me grief. Exiled from Rome as they were, Livy and Catullus were of greater worth and wrote better because of their anger and resentment. Friends, remember me affectionately. Those are the free spirits. Knowing me to be in exile, they pay greater attention to what I write. Not only do they read what I write with greater care, they pay more attention to what I have to say and give me their support. I could almost thank my censors. Today, America is also gifted with these free spirits. We have discovered that we have good friends whom we can count on. The solidarity of these friends gives us more satisfaction than could be enjoyed in a grand journey to the capital of the empire. Signed, Dario Fo, Frank Arame. I'm going to be reading excerpts from this play. This is a radio play. I don't just need your attention. Most of all, I need your imagination. Yes, imagine it. You are at home having supper with half an eye on the TV news. All of a sudden, a photo appears on the screen. A voice says, this is one of the terrorists caught after the killing, Christian name, surname. Ruthless criminal, he perpetuated horrendous crimes. You stare at this passport-style photo. Jesus, it's somebody you know. Your heart suddenly stops, stops dead. My God, it's him. It's not possible, not possible. It's not just somebody you know by chance. Maybe one of your neighbor's kids? No, no, it's your own son. It's you I'm talking to, your own son. Impossible, you say? Crazy? Why? You haven't got children? Well, then your brother or your sister. Imagine it, just imagine. Yes, exactly. One of them, her, him, a terrorist. And it's not a mistake. He was caught with the gun in his hand. He'd been shooting. He wounded a policeman, seriously. Imagine it, please make the effort. 
Yes, I know, it's unbelievable. Your child or your, your brother, you know him, you talk to him every day, you know his ideas. He's got a temper, but he wouldn't harm a fly. He's against violence of any sort, against it. He even wanted to be a conscientious objector. There you are. This is exactly what, what I used to think every time I saw the face of one of those youngsters arrested. In the papers or on TV, I used to tell myself, my child will never be one of them, never. But that young man you're looking at on your TV now, who looks like a decent enough person, that is my son. I'm in torment, I can't figure it out. Where did it all start? When? I run back over our entire life as if it was a movie. Over and over again, I run through from the beginning, but I can't find. Today, he is 24. Ours is a democratic family. We've all been involved in politics at some stage. The lad grew up with, with our ideas. Student protest at school. Everyone was involved in it. In his room, he had all the posters of the big heroes of the moment. Mao Zedong, Che Guevara, Ho Chi Minh, Vietnam. Vietnam, I remember in particular one poster that you must all remember seeing a Vietnamese, a young Vietnamese girl holding a submachine gun standing in front of a gigantic American pilot with his hands up, Goliath, toppled by a young girl. See, the impossible can happen, can't it? How very clear it all was then, so very simple. On one side were the goodies, they were poor, but they had the right ideology. Human beings come first, along with generosity, equality, and freedom. On the other side were the baddies, bullies, greedy, rich, and corrupted. With them, their cars came first, and personal profit, they're evil. Evil always loses, and good always wins. I know, you're thinking what I'm thinking. Rhetoric, triumphalist populism, Yes, yes, looking back on it now, it's easy to pass comment, to say we went too far, we got it wrong. Obviously, all of you saw it coming right from the start. You knew that we were going to come a cropper. All of you, well, lucky you, congratulations. But I think I've got a right to a few doubts. Yes, for example, just a few days ago in a public meeting, I was listening to a well-known intellectual an expert in youth problems, one of those people who always know everything, who always understand things way before everybody else. He was passing judgment on 68, on the stupid things done and what a lot were done. He was criticizing the childishness, the triumphalism of 68, a lot of little Lenins playing at revolution. Then a few days later, I happened to pick up a picture of him, our expert in an old newspaper. He was wearing a crash helmet with a camouflage jacket and an iron bar in his hands as part of the Katanga. Yes, that was their name, wasn't it? Katanga. Now he's got himself a good job. He's in charge of cultural broadcasting on Channel 3. A gourmet chat. Our Katanga is now teaching us how 
to cook meatballs. I wish you could go through what I'm going through now, racking my brain, trying to understand where, when, and how it all began. Because you see, at home, we used to talk with the boy. We used to talk and discuss. Obviously, we didn't always see eye to eye. Sometimes we'd have big arguments. Sometimes it all ended up in ugly scenes. It must have happened to you, I'm sure. For instance, one night he came home with a friend. He asked, Mom, can Aldo stay for a few nights? Of course he can. Your friends are always welcome. Yes, of course. But then you start to wonder, hasn't he got his own family? I asked, what's the matter? Did you have a row with your folks? He was embarrassed, a bit vague. And then the real truth came out. This Aldo was scared that an arrest warrant was about to be issued against him. The police have arrested some of the comrades from his organization, but he left the group ages ago. He's got absolutely nothing to do with it now. I promise you, Mom, he's definitely innocent. So I said, but I don't understand. You, young man, if you are absolutely innocent, what are you afraid of? You just go to see a magistrate. He takes you to see a judge, and you tell him the truth. At that point, my son burst out laughing as if I had just told him the funniest story he'd ever heard. Where do you think you're living, Mom? I can almost see it in the papers. Young man, 24, gives himself up to a judge. The judge, very moved, kisses him and sends him to a remote high-security jail. Look, son, I really think you are overgeneralizing. There are plenty of very honest and correct judges around. My son couldn't stand it any longer, probably because I said something so stupid that I can hardly still believe that I said it. I said, obviously, if the young man has something to hide or something a little bit shady, then I can see why he comes to hide here. The real reason, Mom, the real reason is that you have joined the party of the people with clean hands, the Pontius Pilots of this wonderful society of people who are dead from the neck up. Rule number one, be suspicious of everything and everybody. Don't get involved. Play it safe. Civil rights. Be careful, son. They'll take you for a sympathizer. This shit government has got inside your heads and created a psychosis against, against plague carriers. Yes, we're like plague carriers. In the Middle Ages, when someone died of plague, they walled them up in the same room with their relatives, friends, and acquaintances. Then at this point, he calmed down and added in a controlled voice, for the short time that I still have to live on this planet, I don't want to join the sleeping masses. I want to do something at any cost, just like that, at any cost. At that time, I didn't attach any importance to this at any cost. In fact, I hardly noticed it. But of course, now in the light of what's happened, it's obvious that this at any cost had a very precise meaning. One of those fashionable common sense style psychologists would probably comment, Madam, your son was possessed by a fear of darkness. He solved his personal anxiety about not being anyone by throwing himself into violent, spectacular action. It's easy for him, the rat bag. It's easy. I feel awful. I feel as if I were a letterbox into which people drop 
postcards, messages of all kinds. I watch the television, I read the papers, I listen to people, the few who are still willing to talk to me. Injustice, I say. Injustice all over the place. Scandals, unbridled corruption, thousands of workers thrown out of work, people without houses, thousands of youngsters alienated and criminalized. I went to the prison in Sardinia to visit my son. I went in, long corridors, iron bars, gates, keys. I've never seen so much iron all in one place. Finally, I entered a huge hall divided down the middle by a sheet of glass from floor to ceiling, a very thick glass, and every four feet of this glass was divided by an iron bar to define your space. On the other side of the glass were the prisoners. On this side, men, women, relatives were shout shouting their heads off to make themselves heard. There was no internal phone, no microphone, nothing. The din was like being in a crowded railway station. Where is my son? Excuse me. I see him almost immediately. He's over there behind that sheet of glass. I go over. Here he is. I look at him again and again. I recognize him, not from his face, which is swollen and bruised, but from his jumper. He kept his hands in his pocket. He never took his hands out of his pockets. I only understood why later. He'd had them broken during a transfer. Not because of a riot, not at all. They'd been taken in a van and beaten up, or rather they'd been beaten up and then taken in a van. How many, how many years will he get? 20, 30? Isn't that sufficient punishment? Why all this, this glass, all these beatings? Why not kill them on the spot? Just as soon as they get caught, just shoot them in the head. Oh, no, of course, that can't be done. Sorry, I keep forgetting that we live in a democratic country, in theory. The Germans are so much better at these things. They're the terrorists who are all just killed outright at Stamheim. I look at my boy through the glass, my child. You know, the first time I saw him, when he had just been born, I watched him through the glass then, too, the glass of the aseptic room at the hospital. I don't know if you find the same. My boy has grown up, has become a man, but I still see him as a child. Even when I dream of him, that is the way I see him. I always dream of him when he was little. A few nights ago, I dreamed about him being brought to trial. He came into court escorted by two carabinieri, one on either side holding him. He looked like about five years old, no, no more than that. When he saw me, he tried to smile, then he burst into tears. The judge said to me, please, madam, would you pick him up and make him stop crying? Otherwise, I'll have to suspend the trial since I have to question him. They sat me in the witness box in front of a microphone. You have to collaborate, madam. I beg your pardon? In what sense do I have to cooperate, Your Honor? In the sense that you have to convince your son to cooperate. We shall take his youth into consideration. He must tell us everything he knows, names, surnames, addresses, in other words, he has to repent. Let's see if we can help him a bit. Here we have a list of names. 
he has to indicate which ones he knows. If he hasn't met them in person, it doesn't matter. Even if he's heard of them, that'll do. Finally, if he's not really sure about them, it doesn't really matter either because we shall arrest them and then we'll see what comes out at the trial. Your Honor, what do you mean we'll see what comes out at the trial? That way you run the risk of involving innocent people. Madam, your son's no longer in your lap. Where is your son? You were responsible for him. You were in charge of the defendant child. Where have you hidden your son? Miller. I'm going to uh, examine the uh, examination of a man named uh, Angel Rama or Angel Rama by the uh, immigration authorities under the McCarran Act. Uh, in this century, the case of Angel Rama is a perfectly normal one. A Uruguayan literary critic, he chose to go into exile after the military destroyed democracy in his country. The University of Maryland offered him a tenured professorship in 1981. He then applied for a permanent residence visa and this is what enmeshed him in the McCarran-Walter Act. Under its terms, he was what is called an excludable alien ineligible for permanent residency. He died in an air crash before a final decision could be made in his case. I have before me the transcript of his interrogation by the Immigration Service. To younger people, these questions may seem surprisingly inane, if not stupid, and sometimes unnecessarily crude, forcing Mr. Rama into attitudes of undignified pleading. But to anyone of my generation who has chosen not altogether to forget the 50s, such a procedure was common not merely in the case of the foreigner, but American citizens who were not charged with any crime. My point is simply that the McCarran-Walter Act is one of the pieces of garbage left behind by the sinking of the great scow of McCarthyism. The interrogator has, of course, to know whether Rama ever joined the Communist Party, and he says he hadn't. Nor had he, so he says, affiliated with any organization that advocates doctrines of world communism. Had he either orally or in writing advocated? Neither one, says Rama. You wonder why he doesn't ask whether Rama had ever dreamed of advocating. I'm not sure why, but this reaching into Rama's mind is reminiscent of a question 
asked a woman who I know fairly well, my wife in fact, when she applied for citizenship. Have you ever committed adultery, she was asked. This suggested a good title. Have you ever committed adultery or were you born here? Now, why were they bothering Mr. Rama in the first place? The transcript indicates that Mr. Rama made the fatal error of applying for a waiver of inadmissibility at an American embassy office. Why had he done that if he was not a communist? Mr. Rama replies, I was never informed that this waiver referred to communism. When I became aware of this, I went to the U.S. Embassy in Caracas and informed them that this classification was in error. Unfortunately, despite two letters on the subject to the visa section, he never received a reply. Having disposed of preliminaries, we now get down to business. The interrogator says, According to various newspaper articles, you made trips to the People's Republic of China. Is this correct? Rama. Yes, one trip. How many of these trips did you make? Asked the <laughs> interrogator. One trip. Why were these trips made? This is a side of McCarthyism rarely commented on the persistence of the plural in the face of the singular <laughs> in order to build a record, however false. It reminds me of my own trial in the Federal District Court in Washington, D.C. in 1956. The Un-American Committee, in order to reach for some legal justification for having questioned and cited me for contempt, for refusing to answer some of their questions, caused my indictment on grounds of having misused a United States passport. I allegedly did this when some 10 years earlier in 1947, I had gone to Czechoslovakia from France, Czechoslovakia having been a country forbidden Americans to enter at the time. Every morning of the trial, the federal prosecutor would manage to include in his remarks now, when Mr. Miller went into Czechoslovakia, my problem was that I had never set foot in Czechoslovakia. And each time the prosecutor repeated this untruth, my lawyer, Joe Rao, would leap to his feet and yell, but Your Honor, Mr. Miller has never been in Czechoslovakia. But it made no difference. The prosecutor simply went right on. One evening, after three or four stiff scotches, Joe Rao suddenly leaped to his feet in his living room threw out his arms, he's about six feet three, weighing about 240 pounds, and roared, for Christ's sake, Arthur, in 1947, Czechoslovakia hadn't been taken over by the communists. It was an American ally. Well, we hardly slept that night, <laughs> waiting for the trial to begin the next morning. And at last, the splendid moment arrived the prosecutor stood up and once again with that tired, flat-footed finesse typical of the time, repeated, 
Now, when Mr. Miller went into Czechoslovakia, up sprang Joe Rao, laughter on his lips, his immense hand raised for the judge's recognition. Your Honor, not only was Mr. Miller never in Czechoslovakia, but if he had been there, it was a democratic country in 1947 in alliance with the United States. A moment of silent but inexpressive pause by the judge, the silver-haired judge, the stenotypist, the prosecutor, and the onlookers. Then spake the judge, I think it still falls within the four corners of the indictment, said he. <laughs> and the prosecutor went right on. I whispered to Joe, what does that mean? And he whispered back, nothing. And I would be convicted, sentenced to a year in jail, suspended, and a $500 fine paid. Thus, why were these trips made? When Mr. Rama said there was one trip, tinkles a very old bell. The interrogator asked Mr. Rama, you have been quoted as saying that you are a man, quote, of socialist ideas. What exactly do you mean by this statement? Rama, this means I believe in a regime of social justice, respect for human rights, of political democracy, and of economic democracy. Interrogator, how do you differentiate in your own mind between socialist and communist ideologies? Are they not merely different degrees of the same politico-economic philosophy? Rama tries to take him by the hand, to lead him gently into the real world, where communist regimes destroy political liberties, while socialists allow various parties to express themselves freely. Finally, Rama has to say it out loud in response to, what are your feelings about the doctrines of world communism, Mr. Rama? The problem with this question, Rama suggests, is that I do not know what you are referring to as to the doctrines of world communism. I'm in disagreement with the regimes as found in the Soviet Union, Poland, Cuba, etc., but I prefer regimes such as those in Austria and Sweden. The presidents of these countries are socialists, who, incidentally, would doubtless be excludable under the McCarran Act. And of course, this complexity is at the heart of the matter. The McCarran-Walter Act, like the whole mindset of those miserable 50s, which persists to this day in many quarters, is that communism is indeed the monolith it often wishes it were. But in 1984, the Communist Party of Cambodia is at war with the Communist Party of Vietnam which is at war with the Communist Party of the People's Republic of China, which is at war with the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, which is surrounded with hostile communist states and invaded Afghanistan at the invitation of the Communist Party there. So the question of the immigration department is a little short of moronic in 1984, since it regards as co-conspirators those who hate nothing so much as one another. The interrogator's final two questions are so reminiscent of the birthing time of this act that it's impossible not to include them here. 
Have you, the interrogator asks, ever exhibited active opposition to the doctrines of world communism? If so, how was this act of opposition manifested? When, where, and in what manner? Poor Angel Rama can only reply by citing his own writings, which the interrogator, of course, can hardly be expected to have read. So he flunks again. But surely he can answer this one. What organizations do you belong to that are actively opposed to communism? Rama, of course, is now sinking without a trace. For all he can think of are the Latin American Studies Association, the Modern Language Studies Association, and God help him, Amnesty International. Quite as though Amnesty International had not for years been criticizing bastions of anti-communism like the Pinochet dictatorship in Chile and the regimes in Uruguay, Honduras, San Salvador, and others, so beloved of Ambassador Kirkpatrick and the State Department and the CIA. Clearly, Angel Rama never understood the game which the McCarran Act put into play. He seemed to think that he would be taken for an anti-communist merely because he believed in democracy. But as this interrogation amply proves, democratic convictions are irrelevant to the McCarran Act. The American welcome is reserved for anti-communists who, in some cases, may be enthusiastic about democracy or some other form of society quite different. Given all this, it's hard to end without wondering why Harvard University, for one, protested only to the State Department when Angel Rama was denied entry into the country to address a Harvard audience. Perhaps protests of this kind today will help our repositories of culture to publicly confront some of the more doubtful blessings that McCarthyism bequeathed to the United States. Thank you. I'm William Styron, uh, and I do not speak well in general, but especially impromptu. So therefore, I have written out a uh, relatively brief statement about uh, another writer who has been uh, victimized by the laws that we have on the books. Um, Julio Cortazar was one of the great writers of our time. Uh, to my mind, his masterpiece is his novel Hopscotch, which was first published in, in this country 18 years ago. Hopscotch is one of those daring original works of complicated and grand design that reverberates in the mind, puzzles, exasperates, excites, moves, 
and finally causes one to succumb completely to the author's vision, which to me is the mark of a master. The game of hopscotch actually figures in the book as a metaphor, but the book itself is a game of hopscotch in which the author asks us if we wish to read chapters out of sequence. It all appears to be willful tomfoolery until we realize how artfully such a seeming scramble is attempting to recreate order, or if not demonstrating how order itself in art and in life is a delusion, a joke, a game. Hopscotch is about the alienation and fragmentation of the human personality. Its geographical setting is mainly Paris and Buenos Aires, but its true locus is the troubled center of the human heart. It is written with great humor and dazzling wordplay and often with luminous beauty, most of which has been captured in English in translation once again by the remarkable Gregory Rabassa. A novel of the weight and complexity of hopscotch does not easily lend itself to being except, uh, excerpted for reading. But I've chosen uh, two or three brief chapters, vignettes really, uh, dealing with love mainly. Cortázar uh, was a Latin to the core. And I think these at least demonstrate the range and subtlety of Cortázar's use of language, his intellect, and his emotional power. I met Julio Cortázar very briefly in Paris three years ago, and I wish I'd gotten to know him better. It would not have required the intercession of our mutual friend Carlos Fuentes to, re to reveal to me Cortázar's indwelling humanity and sweetness. Carlos had told me about this, but it was written all over Cortázar's face, not the sweetness of an angel. He had seen too much of human nastiness for that, but the sweetness of a man who, having endured much adversity, still looked upon life as a game, bewildering, perhaps overwhelming in the end, but worth playing with passion and hope. He was then in his mid-sixties and appeared to be about 38, which contributed to the shock most of us felt when we learned of his death only a couple of months ago. The day after I met Cortázar, which was at the inauguration of the new president of France, François Mitterrand made it his very first official act as president to grant French citizenship to two great modern writers who had lived in exile from the tyranny of their native lands. One was Milan Kundera of Czechoslovakia, the other 
Julio Cortaza of Argentina. This remarkable fact was not noted at the time anywhere in the American press. I note it now without feeling, however, that there is any further need to underscore the irony that connects Mitterrand's gesture and the circumstances that bring us together this evening. My first, uh, these are all very brief, as I say, small vignettes which uh, cannot really give you any sense of the enormous complexity of the book, but will, I think, give a sense of the man's remarkable uh, intellectual and literary gifts. Perfumes, Orphic hymns, civets in the first and second meanings. Here you smell of sardonics. Here a chrysophase. Here, wait a minute, here it's like parsley, but just a hint, a small piece lost in a chamois skin. Here your own smell starts. How strange, really, that a woman cannot smell herself the way a man can smell her. Here, exactly. Don't move. Let me. You smell of royal jelly, of, of honey in a tobacco pouch, of seaweed, even though the place might make it topical. There's so many kinds of seaweed. La Maga smelt of fresh seaweed, pulled up by the sea's last surf of the wave itself. On some days, the smell of seaweed would become mixed up with a thicker cadence. Then I would have to recourse to perversion, but it was a palatine perversion, you understand, that of a seneschal surrounded by nocturnal obedience to bring my lips up to hers, touched with my tongue that light pink flame that fluttered surrounded by shadow, and then, as now I do with you, I would slowly separate her thighs, hold her a little to one side, and breathe into her interminably, feeling how her hand, without my asking, would begin to break me up the way a flame begins to pluck its topazes out of a wrinkled newspaper. Then the perfumes would stop miraculously, and everything was taste biting, essential juices running about the mouth, the fall into that shadow, the primeval darkness, the hub of the wheel of origin. Yes, in that instant of the most crouching animality, close to excretion and its unspeakable apparatus, there the initial and final figures are sketched. There in the viscous cavern of your daily relaxation stands the trembling Aldebaran, genes and constellations jump. Everything becomes alpha and omega, coquille, conca, conio, millennium, Armageddon, teramycin. Oh, shut up. Don't come on with your despicable show, your easy mirrors, the silence of your skin, its abysses with the roll of emerald dice, gadflies, and phoenixes and craters. 
then there's a little brief reflection which arrests me for no other reason than it's than that it's arresting. It's a a thought. Stands all by itself as one of the chapters in this uh, remarkable book. Why so far from the gods? Perhaps simply by asking. And so what? Man is the animal who asks. The day when we will really learn how to ask, there will be a dialogue. Right now, questions sweep us away from the answers. What epiphany can we expect if we are drowning in the falsest of freedoms, the Judeo-Christian dialectic? We need a real novum organum. We have to open our windows up wide and throw everything out into the street. But above all, we also have to throw out the window and ourselves along with it. It is either a case of death or a continuing flight. We have to do it. In some way or another, we have to do it. To have the strength to plunge into the midst of parties and crown the head of the dazzling lady of the house with a beautiful green frog, a gift of night, and suffer without horror the vengeance of her lackeys. And finally, just this, more love. I touch your mouth, I touch the edge of your mouth with my finger. I am drawing it as if it were something my hand was sketching, as if for the first time your mouth opened a little and all I have to do is close my eyes to erase it and start all over again every time I can make the mouth I want appear. The mouth which my hand chooses and sketches on your face and which by some chance that I do not seek to understand coincides exactly with your mouth which smiles beneath the one my hand is sketching on you. You look at me from close up, you look at me closer and closer and then we play Cyclops. We look closer and closer at one another and our eyes get larger. They come closer, they merge into one and the two Cyclopses look at each other, blending as they breathe. Our mouths touch and struggle in gentle warmth, biting each other with their lips, barely holding their tongues on their teeth playing in corners where a heavy air comes and goes with an old perfume and a silence. Then my hands go to sink into your hair to cherish slowly the depth of your hair while we kiss as if our mouths were filled with flowers or with fish, with lively movements and dark fragrance. And if we bite each other, the pain is sweet. And if we smother each other in a brief and terrible sucking in together of our breaths, that momentary death is beautiful. And there is but one saliva and one flavor of ripe fruit 
and I feel you tremble against me like a moon on the water. That man was considered a danger to the United States. Thank you. I attended a Congress on the Writer and Human Rights in Toronto, Canada in 1981, and several of the writers in attendance there approached me in conversation and expressed their happiness that we were able to talk in Canada because they were unfortunately unable to come to the United States. And I didn't question them. What did they mean by this? What were they referring to? Last year, at the invitation of the Asian Writers Congress, I went to Japan. And during the course of the Congress, I was approached by a prominent Japanese writer who showed me a letter uh, from the State Department. This, this writer spoke quite fluent English, but wanted me to interpret something for him. He was about to begin an academic year as a professor at an American university. And the letter from the State Department indicated that he was not to travel in the United States farther than 25 miles from this particular university in a 25-mile radius. And he asked me what this meant. And I said, well, I, to my horror, I said, I think it means what it says. I think you can't go outside of 25 miles of this town. I assumed that he could travel by jet and maybe make a stop and a change of planes, and then once he arrived, he would have to stay there. I know that internal travel is restricted in the Soviet Union and also in the People's Republic of China and in other countries of the Eastern Bloc, but I did not know until then that it is restricted here. And after we parted from our conversation, I began to wonder how it would be determined if he did in fact leave that 25-mile radius, by what means would, it, would he be watched? What would happen? How would they know? And those questions horrified me even more. That's why I'm here. I'm going to read three poems by the poet Mahmoud Darwish. He is a, of Tunis. He's a Palestinian poet. The first is called Prison. The address of my house has changed, and the time when I eat. Changed, too, the amount of my tobacco, the color of my clothes, my face, the look of me. Even the moon, so dear to me here, has become larger, more beautiful. And the smell of the earth, perfume and the taste of nature, sugar. It is as though I am on the roof of my old house and a new star has riveted itself upon my eye. Victim number 48. They found in his chest a lamp of roses and a moon and he thrown dead upon the stones.
In his pocket, they found a few piasters, a box of matches, a travel pass, and tattoo marks upon his young arm. His mother missed him, mourned him year after year. Box thorns sprouted in his eyes and darkness thickened. When his brother grew up and went looking for work in the city's markets, they put him in prison. He carried no travel pass. All he carried in the street was a box of garbage and other boxes. So, children of my country, thus did the moon die. And the last is called Letter from Exile. Greetings and a kiss on the cheek. I have nothing more to say. Where shall I begin? Where end? The cycle of time is limitless, and all I have in my homelessness is a haversack containing a stale loaf, my yearning, and a notebook which sometimes lightens my burdens, having spat out onto its pages my weary bitterness. From where shall I begin? Everything said and to be said after tomorrow ends with no embrace, no touch of the hand, takes no wanderer back to his homeland, brings down no rain, makes grow no feathers on the wing of a lost and broken bird. From where shall I begin? Greetings and a kiss. Then I say to the microphone, tell her I'm all right. I say to the bird, if you should encounter her, bird, forget me not and say, he's all right. I'm all right, all right. I still have the faculty of sight. There's still a moon in the sky, and my old suit has not fallen apart quite yet. Though its ends are frayed, I've patched it up, and it's still all right. I've become a young man. I'm over 20, imagine it. I'm 20, and like other young men, mother, I'm facing life and carrying its burdens as other men do, and I work in a restaurant, washing the dishes and making coffee for the customers. I paste smiles on my sad face to please the customers. I'm all right. I'm 20 years of age. Mother, I've become like other young men. I smoke and lean against walls and say hello to pretty girls. As others do I say, brothers, how lovely girls are. Imagine how bitter life would be without them. Life is bitter. Said to my friend, do you have a loaf of bread? Brothers, what's the worth of a man if every night he goes hungry to sleep? I'm all right, all right. I have a dark loaf of bread and a small basket of vegetables. I heard on the radio the homeless greeting the homeless. All of them said, we're all right. No one is sad. And how is my father? Does he still, as of old, love to make mention of Allah, suns, the soil, and olive trees? And how are my brothers? Have they become civil servants? Once I heard my father say they'd all become teachers. I heard him say, I'll go hungry to buy them books. No one in my village can make out a word in a letter. And how is our sister? 
Has she grown up? Have suitors come for her hand? And how's my grandmother? Does she still as of old sit by the doorway praying that we be granted prosperity, vigor, and Allah's blessings? And how's our house with its well-worn doorstep, the heating stove, the doors? I heard on the radio the messages of the homeless to the homeless. They're all all right, but I am sad, almost eaten up with worries. The radio brought no news of you, not even sad news, not even sad news. Night, mother, is a hungry killer wolf pursuing the wanderer wherever he goes and opens horizons to ghosts and the forests of willows still embraces the winds. What mother have we done wrong that we must twice die, dying once in life itself and then again in death? Do you know what fills me with sobbing? Suppose I fell ill one night, sickness racking my body. Would the evening remember a migrant who came here and return not to his homeland? Would the evening remember a migrant who died without a shroud? Forest of willows, would you remember that he whom they threw under your sad shade, like anything that is dead, is a man? Would you remember that I am a man and protect my corpse from the ravaging crows? Mother of mine, oh mother, to whom have I written these pages? What male is there to take them? Blocked is the way by land and sea and air. You, mother of mine, and my father, brothers, relatives, and friends are perhaps alive. Perhaps you're dead. Perhaps, like me, you have no address. What's the worth of a man without a homeland, without a flag, without an address? What is the worth of such a man? My name is Susan Sontag. Um, I'm going to read from two writers who are uh, listed as excludable aliens. Uh, the first, uh, and this is one of the more picturesque cases, is Carlos Fuentes. Uh, Carlos Fuentes is a, uh, uh, a very distinguished Mexican diplomat's son. In fact, he grew up in Washington, D.C., um, and uh, he himself has had an important uh, career as a, as a diplomat for his own country, Mexico, Mexico being one of those many Latin American countries which honors writers by making them ambassadors. Uh, he was the Mexican ambassador to uh, France for some years, and, and uh, he's recently turned down the uh, offer to become the Mexican ambassador to the court of St. James in, in order to take a permanent position uh, as a, a professor of literature at Harvard University. This is an example of an excludable 
uh, alien. Uh, he has a large body of work. He is a Nobel candidate. Um, his articles, uh, articles written by him regularly appear in the op-ed op page of the New York Times. As I said, he has uh, also, uh, besides his diplomatic career, a, a long academic career in this country. He's been at uh, Princeton, Professor at Princeton Dartmouth. He's now in Washington University, St. Louis. He will be, as of next year, at Harvard. Um, and yet, he um, is on this list. And he has, as you'll see, consulting the material that, that uh, uh, was handed out uh, when you came in. Uh, for, uh, there was a whole period when he couldn't get into the United States at all, that he was even stopped and permitted, not permitted to make a uh, um, uh, change planes in Puerto Rico. Uh, Carlos Fuentes, not that it matters, has never been a member of the Communist Party of any country. He has, uh, uh, he has been critical of American imperialism uh, in his own country and in Central America and in Latin America, and one has to assume that it's for this reason that he got on that list. His politics actually quite conventional, uh, and certainly being against American imperialism is a conventional position among intelligent people uh, in Mexico and Central America and South America. Uh, as I say, most, most people, because he is so much in the United States, even grew up in the United States, and he's so famous and so respectable, uh, are not aware of the fact that he still needs a waiver each time to enter this country. It is still an exception for Carlos Fuentes to come to Harvard to teach, and special arrangements must be made for him. So here is here's one end um, of, of the absurdity of this law and the kind of people that it uh, penalizes or humiliates or uh, expresses its displeasure at. I'm going to read from uh, Fuentes's very uh, ambitious book, his most ambitious book, I suppose you'd say, Terra Nostra, which was published in 1975 um, in Spanish and first published in 1976 in this country, translated by Margaret Sayers Pedden. It's recently been republished in, in, in paperback by Farrastras and Giroux with a fascinating uh, essay afterward by Millen Kundera. Uh, Fuentes is, of course, the author of many, many books, The Death of Artemio Cruz, Aura, Change of Skin, and so forth. This is a very long book, very complicated, and I, I thought I would read two uh, short sections of it. It's a polyphonic book. It, uh, uh, the narrative has a hundred characters and, and stretches over four centuries. Um, but here are two very interesting, I think, pass short passages. <coughs> this is called The Exhortation. What do you expect of the future, my poor unhappy lad? Why did you leave your home, your distant but fertile fields, where you were loved and protected? Why are you marching in this crusade? What have they promised you? Listen, stop the dancing. Do not excite yourself. Why are you concerned, my son? Why are you worried? Rejoin your friends. Ask them to be silent. What an infernal din. No one can be rational in such circumstances. How can anything be understood? Tell them to put down their fifes and bagpipes and drums and listen to me. The world is in order. It is well ordered. We struggled long and hard to emerge from the shadows. You young do not know what that was. 
Darkness, my children, barbarism, yes, the sacking, plundering hordes, blood, crime, and ignorance. It was with great effort that we came forth from that hell. More than once we fell back. More than once the sword of the Goth, the conflagration of the Mogul, and the horsemen of the Hun tumbled our constructs as if they were of sand. But look now, we have organized a space. We have created a stable order. Look at the cultivated fields. Look at the cities safe within their bastions. Look at the castle on the heights and give thanks for the protection our senor, the prince, like a good father, offers in exchange for our vassalage. Go back to your classrooms, my sons. What are you doing here? Go back to Bologna, to Salamanca, and to Paris. You will not find the truth accompanying this rabble, this mob of beggars and prostitutes and false heresiarchs. The truth lies in the teachings of the church fathers and in the flower of their philosophy. The angelic doctor, Thomas Aquinas, who summed up for eternity all the wisdom of which the human being is capable. Do not look for heaven in this orgy of sensuality and music and exultant doubts and heretical ideas. There are no heavens but those defined in the elucidations. The corporeal heaven we see, the spiritual heaven inhabited by the angels, and the intellectual paradise where the fortunate shall stand face to face with the Holy Trinity. Young men, each of us has a well-established place on this earth. The liege commands, the serf obeys, the student studies, the priest prepares us for the life eternal, the learned doctor propounds the inviolate truths. No, it is not true what you proclaim. It is not true that we are free because Christ's sacrifice redeemed us from the sin of Adam. It is not true that the grace of God is within the reach of every man without the intercession of ecclesiastical powers. It is not true that redeemed human flesh may savor its own juices its own polished smoothness, its joyful contact with other bodies without fear of sin. We cannot put aside the fact that as today we throw ourselves with pleasure into bed, soon others will throw us into the tomb. It is not true that the new Jerusalem can be constructed on this earth. Anathema be the teachings of the heretic Pelagius, defeated, thankfully, by St. Augustine of Hippo. Anathema, too, the teachings of Origen, the suspect, who, surely not without some reason, culminated his thought with the atrocious act of self-castration. And the teachings of Joachim of Florus, that tenebrous Italian monk as well, for no man obtains grace without the church, as Pelagian heresy would have, nor will a millenary kingdom be realized in the souls of all believers, as Origen speculated, nor will they be, there be, as prophesied in the Joachimite madness, a place in space, a third age that will be the Sabbath and the pleasure of sorrowing humanity, and in which epoch Christ and his church will be replaced since the spirit will reign fully in their stead. It is not true that you are the bearers of grace accompanied by this riffraff, barefoot vagabonds who burn the lands and harvests, stables and farms, who assault and destroy monasteries, churches and hermit cells, who steal food and clothing from devastated castles, who will not work, 
who contend that they live in perfect joy and who say they do all this to hasten, to hasten the second coming of a Christ who must in truth be the Antichrist and so a cruel and seductive tyrant but a tyrant who may nevertheless be overcome and for that reason one who is capable of bringing about the defeat of your millinery promise of a kingdom of heaven on earth never to come about while lords are masters of all and serfs masters of nothing. What confusion is this? You say the millinery kingdom will rise only upon a vacant, destroyed, and leveled earth like that of the first day of creation? But the creation, my beloved children, was beyond history and thus cannot be repeated. And you add that only upon this demolished earth may, may the new Christ be received, a Christ who actually will be the conquerable antichrist whose downfall will assure, oh yes, will assure that, joy, that joyous era where the spirit will reign unfettered, not in an individual incarnation, but incarnate in all. But if that cruel and seductive tyrant should not be vanquished, but instead be perpetuated in a third age of weeping and terror and misery, embodying history, and with all his means enlisting those who do not understand that the act of creation cannot be repeated, that its repetition would only disguise the original act, inscribing it forever in the same history they wish to negate, and thus provide the Antichrist the double weapon of the ability to act masqueraded as the creator, and also to reign with impunity as the ruler. What then? Is this the way you say you are imitating Christ, whose reign will not be of this world, and whom we shall encounter only in heaven when all time has come to an end, far from the earth, far from history, far from the eschatological delirium with which you are attempting to establish as a part of history everything that has no part in history? Do you truly believe that poverty erases sin, that communal property and the exaltation of sex and the sensuality of the dance and the rejection of all authority and the unrestrained life of vagabonds in the forest, on the beaches and along the highways could supplant and even overcome the established order? Listen, stop your dancing. Why do you not listen? Cease your singing. What infernal racket. How may I make myself heard? Damned sickness of St. Vitus. You are mad. You are sick. Rest. Go back to your homes. The carnival is over. The revelry cannot last forever. The disarmed crusades. The rebellious aspiring soul end in sacrifice upon funeral pyres in seigneurial castles. Forget your illusions. Stop yearning for the impossible. Accept the world as it is. Stop dreaming. Yes, the liege has the right to the first nuptial night. And his are the harvests and the honor and respect. And he is entitled to recruit for his wars and impose tributes for his luxuries. And yes, the bishop can sell indulgences and burn witches and torture heretics who speak of Jesus Christ as if he were a purely human man, our equal. Do not doubt, do not think, do not dream, my unhappy sons. This is the world. The world ends here. 
There is nothing beyond the edge of the sea, and whosoever embarks seeking new horizons will be but a miserable galley slave in a ship of fools. The earth is flat, and this is the center of the universe. The land you seek does not exist. There is no such place. There is no such place. And so a raving, ranting Simon wandered the streets of the cities of his time, cities stifled beneath the plague, buried beneath their own filth. Though they retained their pain, his eyes had lost their clarity forever. He was become a breathless, timberless voice, an expressionless gaze, a colorless face. I'm, I'm going to read uh, not one, but three poems by Pablo Neruda, who died 12 days after Salvador Allende was murdered and the government of Chile overthrown. Pablo Neruda was a Nobel Prize winner, great poet of the century, and for most of his life, a member of the Communist Party of Chile. I will read first from his greatest book, which is called uh, Residence on Earth. It's a collection of poems, very ambitious, long, uh, uh, collection of poems in in three sections or sequences, Residence 1, Residence 2, Residence 3. I'm going to read a poem from Residence 2. These were poems written uh, in the early 30s. The translation is, um, is by Robert Bly. This is a poem called Nothing But Death, Solo La Muerte. There are cemeteries that are lonely, Graves full of bones that do not make a sound. The heart moving through a tunnel. In it, darkness, darkness, darkness. Like a shipwreck, we die going inside ourselves, as though we were drowning inside our hearts, as though we lived falling out of the skin into the soul. And there are corpses feet made of cold and sticky clay. Death is inside the bones, like a barking where there are no dogs, coming from bells somewhere, from graves somewhere, growing into the damp air like tears or rain. Sometimes I see alone coffins under sail, embarking with the pale dead, with women that have dead hair, with bakers who are white as angels, and pensive young girls married to notary publics, caskets sailing up the vertical river of the dead, the river of dark purple, moving upstream with sails filled out by the sound of death, filled by the sound of death, which is silence.
Death arrives among all that sound like a shoe with no foot in it, like a suit with no man in it, comes and knocks using a ring with no stone in it, with no finger in it, comes and shouts with no mouth, with no tongue, with no throat. Nevertheless, its steps can be heard and its clothing makes a hushed sound like a tree. I'm not sure. I understand only a little. I can hardly see. But it seems to me that its singing has the color of damp violets, a violets that are at home in the earth because the face of death is green and the look death gives is green with the penetrating dampness of a violet leaf and the somber color of embittered winter. But death also goes through the world dressed as a broom, lapping the floor, looking for dead bodies. Death is inside the broom. The broom is the tongue of death, looking for corpses. It is the needle of death, looking for thread. Death is inside the folding cots. It spends its life sleeping on the slow mattresses in the black blankets and suddenly breathes out. It blows out a mournful sound that swells the sheets and the beds go sailing toward a port where death is waiting, dressed like an admiral. Uh, that's a great poem by Neruda, one of, one of his, one of poems of his great period. Uh, I believe that politics is not literature and that literature is not politics. Indeed, they are, I think, opposites. <laughs> Nevertheless, uh, politics as well as literature is what brings us together here. And so I propose to close with two poems of Neruda's which are far, far less important as poetry, but after all, do uh, recall the political reality which concerns us all. And this is from a later book called The Canto General, 1950. Uh, this poem is called The United Fruit Company. When the trumpet sounded, it was all prepared on the earth, and Jehovah parceled out the earth to Coca-Cola Incorporated, Anaconda, Ford Motors, and other entities. The Fruit Company Incorporated reserved for itself the most succulent, the central coast of my own land, the delicate waste of America. It rechristened its territories as the Manana Republics, and over the sleeping dead, over the restless heroes who brought about the greatness, the liberty, and the flags, it established the comic opera, abolished the independencies, presented crowns of Caesar, unsheathed envy, attracted the dictatorship of the flies, Trujillo flies, Taco flies, Carias flies, Martinez flies, Ubico flies, damp flies of modest blood and marmalade, drunken flies who zoom over the ordinary graves, circus flies, wise flies, well-trained in tyranny. 
And last, also from this period, 1950s, a poem called The Dictators. An odor has remained among the sugar cane, a mixture of blood and body, a penetrating petal that brings nausea. Between the coconut palms, the graves are full of ruined bones, of speechless death rattles. The delicate dictator is talking with top hats, gold braid, and colors. The tiny palace gleams like a watch, and the rapid laps, with gloves on, cross the corridors at times and join the dead voices and the blue mouths freshly buried. The weeping cannot be seen like a plant whose seeds fall endlessly on the earth, whose large blind leaves grow even without light. Hatred has grown scale on scale, blow on blow, in the ghastly water of the swamp with a snout full of ooze and silence. Thank you. On behalf of Penn and the Fund for Free Expression, I'd like to thank you all for appearing tonight. And I would also like to thank the wonderful participants in this evening. Thank you. And, and, and finally, I, I trust that the sobriety of the evening will not be undermined by the flow of champagne that we invite all of you to join us in, in the living room to my left. Please join us. Thank you. <laughs>